This is Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. In this edition, we're trying on the experience of wearables, looking for principles to guide your design approaches, and trying desperately to find a better word to define an area which is far broader and more interesting than just smartwatches and fitness trackers. There are show notes with links to all of the references and examples that we mention at mobileuserexperience.com, where you'll also find a wealth of other MEX content on experience design and an archive of all of our previous podcasts. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of Mex. And I'm Alex Guest, the co-host of the Mex podcast. Now, you might remember that in episode 25 of the Mex podcast, uh, Alex, Patrizia and I got around to our review of some of the experiences that had been catching our eye during 2016. And Patrizia finished up with a bit of a call to action around what's been happening with wearables and smartwatches or perhaps more accurately, what hasn't quite been happening around wearables and smartwatches, that these are things which we started the year feeling had a lot of promise, but perhaps haven't quite lived up to those expectations. So Patrizia put out um, a bit of a call to our MEX listeners, uh, the MEX community, about whether or not they could inspire us with any interesting examples to get the conversation going and move things beyond that. And we've actually had a wealth of stuff back from people, which has been great. And I think it's going to lead to this being a a bit of an ongoing theme. Um, Now, Alex, you had some ideas about how we might try and get into a bit of a grounding around this subject, because, you know, we've got examples that uh, listeners have contributed Um, But I think we also would like to try and get beyond those and look at what they might really mean in terms of some design principles. But what did you have in mind for how we might go about that? Marek, I think one of the things that we've kind of concluded before we actually got into this this conversation was the term wearable is is, um, somewhat generic and broad. um, And it'd be useful to to come away from that in some way and, and start to look at what's going on under the surface. So what I thought we might do is, is go back to our, our regular pattern, the, the show and tell segment that we've had on, on several of our uh, episodes. Um, and, you know, perhaps, you know, we could each discuss one particular wearable that we've seen and, and bring out some, some themes that are associated with that. So I don't know, Marek, perhaps you'd like to, to, to kick things off with, with an example? Yeah, sounds good. And I mean, we've got really quite a collection of these growing now in our base camp where we have been trying to keep track of them all. But I wanted to pick out one as being perhaps representative of an end of the spectrum. Now, this was something which I came across in the Financial Times How to Spend It magazine at the weekend. Uh, For those who don't know the publication, 
Um, yeah, it's one of those slightly guilty pleasure reads where you read through about various different um, lifestyles involving yachts and private jets and that sort of stuff. So, you know, it, it tends to aim at quite a, a high-end um, <laughs> and un, unrealizably high-end, um, I, I suspect, for uh, for a lot of people. And one of the things they picked out was um, something called the Lumo Hernhill Harrington, uh, which is a jacket that is being um, produced by a UK company sells for about £250 and it's a water-resistant soft shell. Um, I think, you know, ideally suited probably to something like cycling, you know, commuting on your bike uh, in in a city. Um, And the standout feature of it, apart from the fact that it uses, you know, one of the top-end water-resistant soft shell fabrics is that it's also embedded with an array of 14 LEDs uh, and an 1100 milliamp hour lithium polymer battery. Um, yeah, for reference, that's yeah, about like 40% of the battery capacity you'd have in, in the average smartphone these days. Uh, and it lights up as you're cycling along. Um, and there are various different smarts in there about how it does that to make sure that you remain visible while you're cycling. Uh, and in the most literal sense, you know, this is something which you wear and has got bits of technology embedded within it. Now, I know when I posted this, this up on our base camp, uh, it led to a bit of a conversation between you and I as to whether or not this actually qualifies as a wearable per se. Yeah, I mean, what, what, what was it about this particular jacket that, that you wanted to, to really draw attention to? I mean, it's just a bike light, isn't it? <laughs> uh, that, that's a perfectly valid argument. Um, you know, I think that is its its fundamental purpose. Um, to my mind, it, it got me thinking about uh, this idea that, you know, why would you wear that bike light in the form of a jacket rather than it being something, for instance, that you clipped directly onto your bike or was built directly onto your bike? Uh, and for this category in general, um, maybe that's one of the defining features here is that it has to be something which is more convenient for you to wear or by integrating it into something that you wear, uh, it brings some user benefit in doing that. Uh, And this, to my mind, was getting into that area. I'm not sure it's necessarily the whole answer. And I think there's more that could be done here. I mean, I know, for instance, there are jackets out there which are able to sense uh, the arm movement of the user so that if you're indicating with your arm as to which way you're going to turn on a bike, uh, it then provides an indicator light uh, illuminated within the fabric of the jacket. Now, perhaps that's something where there's a bit more of what we would consider to be smarts within the garment. Um, but you know, it started me thinking about that whole concept, which I think is at the heart of this issue about whether or not uh, something is actually you know, genuinely benefiting from being made into a piece of wearable tech rather than any other approach. And I, I, I think, uh, you know, I was deliberately being a little bit provocative there. Um, there are, as you say, a number of other jackets and, and other forms of wearable that are designed to make the cyclist, um, and here we really are talking about cyclists, uh, more visible. But, you know, there, there have been other bits of um, garment technology uh, that don't require any sort of embedding of electricity and so on from the likes of uh, Adidas, who have, who have created a running jacket um, quite a few years ago now that was much more visible. And I, I think there are a number of other 
sportswear companies that are making more visible garments. But I guess with, with cycling, where you have to be really very visible, particularly uh, on a day like today, where we have uh, snow forecast in London, um, and I believe it's been snowing all over the rest of the UK, I, I suspect that it, it really does make sense to have embedded LEDs in, in your jacket and potentially, as you say, some other smarter forms of technology in the fabric themselves um, that makes the, the, wearable, the, the wearer visible and safe. But yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're right to be um, provocative about this in the sense that uh, this, is, this is basic. I mean, what they've done here is put lights in a jacket and it's something which you plug in presumably to you know, a USB charger or some kind of wall charger um, to top up the power of it. You know, that's, that's a pretty almost sort of brutally basic example of what wearable technology can be. But have you found others? I mean, are there, could we go to the other end of the spectrum here and look at something which is, you know, perhaps a little more imaginative? Um, yeah, uh, th- this one rather amused me, uh, Merrick. And, and um, the, the, the next web, TNW, uh, recently reported um, a new wearable that was, I believe, featured at the, at the CES conference. Um, and um, it, uh, it's, it's the Willow Smart Breast Pump. And this is apparently the first truly wearable smart breast pump. I uh, don't have children and neither am I a woman. Uh, so perhaps I, I'm missing the point here. But um, it turns out that the, the Willow Smart Breast Pump um, has uh, two big standout features, which apparently are minimal hardware and sound. Um, that is to say that they, they are shaped uh, it's 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 a twin breast pump so it, it's not just one device it's it's effectively two um, and and I, I guess you you put it in your bra and you can wear it as you get on with the, with your day um, it's apparently extremely quiet which other breast pumps aren't and and is and is lightweight although it will presumably make you look considerably larger than uh, your actual breast size so uh, this this was an interesting one. I mean, for for me, it just seemed to me that that the underlying purpose here of making a breast pump that is better, that is quieter, that is uh, more usable, is the ultimate objective here. And I, I wonder whether by tagging it as wearable or tagging it as smart, we're beginning to 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 lose that, and we're trying to jump on a on a on a bandwagon rather than think really what is the underlying motive for creating a better breast pump yeah I, I, that's an interesting point i mean i think that you there's always this danger when new categories start to emerge and you know in this case uh, it's been led mainly around what's been happening with things like fitness trackers and smartwatches and they're perceived by companies and investors as being part of an overall category and yeah there's a temptation when you're a startup that's working in something which is tangentially related to that um, to end up focusing on that as being part of your marketing because yeah that potentially is the route to investment or that's potentially the route to press coverage at a big event like ces um, to build something like this as a wearable but you know it also you know gets me thinking about well firstly you and i are you uniquely unqualified to um, look at the usability of something like this by virtue of our gender but um it's uh, it also highlights uh, you know just how 
um, you straight away when you start going into things which you wear rather than necessarily carry, you get into you know, a much deeper range potentially of user research issues, of design issues, um, where there's going to need to be a great deal more um, sensitivity, investment, time put into these things to really understand the needs of particular groups of users. And yeah, in this case, we're talking about a breast pump, but you could just as easily be talking about any other piece of kit which um, yeah has some kind of uh, medical application or something which uh, you know ends up um, being closer to your skin than something like a smartphone or a laptop which you just carry uh, and yeah that's perhaps why this is an important conversation to be having in the context of user experience and that experience-led approach to design is that I think that Many of these products, many of the things which fall within this sort of broad category we're going to look at are all going to have that much greater emphasis on the need for really good quality user research and the ability to design things which are very suited to individual needs as they get closer physically and metaphorically to, to the user's skin. Absolutely. And, and if we go back to Patricia's challenge, I think her frustration was born of the limitations and inadequacies of devices such as uh, smartwatches and activity trackers, uh, bracelets of that sort of thing. And I, I think that is that is one category that uh, you know com- comes under the, 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 the term wearable. But we, we really are beginning to see a whole range of other products that are nothing to do with uh, what we've thought of as wearable to date, and and when we first thought about this this particular episode, my my viewpoint was that to be called a wearable, it needs to have some form of uh, data input and output. Uh, the input is probably going to be automated, and it's probably going to come from a range of well, from one or more sensors that are that are worn, um, and that the data that is produced by those sensors is then communicated to some other device. And, and actually, I think that that is, that is quite a limiting way of thinking about things. Um, but I also think that the term wearable is, is limiting in itself. Rather than, than try to, to um, embed sensors or embed technologies into garments or bits of jewelry or, or, or new forms, although that could also be quite interesting, is to think about what is the objective and how can we do that better? And I know in our conversation, for example, you know, you you, you mentioned on the base camp in passing a, a jacket that has a heater inside it. And for me, this is this is this is crazy. I mean, I think you know, in in very cold temperatures, uh, pe- people who are used to dealing with cold temperatures know how to layer up and and, and keep you know quite warm without the use of technologies that are likely to fail at extreme temperatures. So, so I think sometimes we're putting tech where it doesn't belong or we're putting the wrong tech, the sorts of digital and electronic tech that has been thought of as, as tech, as opposed to some of the other sort of technologies that we can use to create new fabrics, new textiles um, that have uh, objectives that aren't just about um, creating bio data. Well, Potentially. I mean, looking at the forecast for the UK over the next few days, I 
should probably give you the opportunity to you know revisit that conclusion um, after we see what happens with the the snowfall and the virtues <laughs> of <laughs> of jackets with built-in heaters. Um, but no, I, I I do take on board your point completely. And just going back to to what you were saying about um, that idea of automating inputs, you know that I think feels like something. If we start to step away from some of these specific product examples, um, if we start to try and look for some of the unifying principles here, that notion that there is a need for some applications, be they things that we're doing currently that we want to improve or make more efficient, or be they new applications that you know we haven't yet uh, come up with or don't yet realize we have a need for, that idea that by wearing something, it can automate a series of data inputs feels like quite an important starting point and maybe something which is missed slightly with this first and second generation of smartwatches we have where they seem to be kind of stuck in this this weird halfway house where on the one hand they've got things on board which allow them to uh, automate data inputs but they're also trying to be output devices in the way they deliver alerts and with some of them yeah they've even tried to build essentially little miniature computers which sit on your wrist where you can input information using your fingertip using a, an on-screen keyboard which you know if you've ever tried to do that on a one and a half inch circular screen you'll realize that it, it's not the best user experience in the world um, so you know at the moment it, it still feels like we're kind of cobbling together bits of technology because they're emerging from the labs and they look interesting and packaging them up in form factors which people are already familiar with like watches or pedometers but missing some of those fundamentals about how that ability to automate data inputs by wearing something somewhere on your body could lead to a whole new set of experiences um, which perhaps don't fit with the, the current categories that we're used to. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's true. But I also think that perhaps we need to come away from this idea of of sensors uh, being fundamental. I mean, there there are, there are some some really clever things going on with sensors that uh, I think are yet to make the mainstream and 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 are probably not supposed to make the mainstream. Sensors that uh, monitor um, the chemical composition of your sweat, for example, um, and 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 uh, which can be used in in contexts such as um, monitoring mental health and and um, episodes that that are uh, prefaced by uh, the chemical composition of your sweat changing and and, and secreting certain certain hormones. So so there there, there are there are lots of very clever things that can be done that won't necessarily ever become mainstream, but have practical solutions and are based on on sensors. But I suspect that the, the, those sensors aren't going to be embedded into devices of the kinds that we're used to. Although, you know, it might be that they go, get into a particular ring, but it might also be that they're just a, almost a skin that, that sits on, on your body somewhere discreetly uh, without it having to have, um, without it really screaming out, you know, look, I'm, I'm tracking my steps. Um, so, so perhaps that's, that's also something to be, to be considered is, is, the the notion that the form factor might be as hidden as possible. Absolutely, and and that in fact was one of the things which was alluded to in that Financial Times How to Spend It piece about the Lumo jacket. Is they were talking about some of the things that Lumo are looking at for the future, um, including uh, things like 
membranes which are able to sense impact and then automatically harden um, when they sense that impact happening. So in the context of something like a cycling jacket, you know, this might be a way of providing some additional protection to someone, say, when they fell off uh, their bike. And to all intents and purposes, it would look like a normal jacket from the outside, but it has this kind of secret embedded capability to it, which becomes quite interesting. And it led me on to a nature piece, a piece in the, the Nature Journal, uh, which was going into quite a lot of detail about those different membranes and some of the things which are being developed around artificial skin, which yeah, allow you to do all kinds of interesting new forms of, of sensing right next to, to, to the person's skin, or in some cases, um, you know, supplementing the, the, the skin entirely, which takes you into you know a whole different realm about what might be Become possible. Um, but it, it did get me thinking about you know, another area that we have looked at, which I think possibly has some transferable principles for these, where if you think about you know, all the things that already are being experimented with around the so-called Internet of Things and, for instance, sensors which are starting to appear in the built environment, people's homes and, and offices, uh, one of the, the lessons which has come out of that straight away is that rarely uh, is one data set sufficient to be able to make accurate judgments uh, and then provide some kind of contextual response within the user experience. So I guess there should be a note of caution about the idea that we might have this sort of breakthrough technology arrive, which for instance can sense as you say, something like hormones uh, being secreted on the skin and then link that to a mental health outcome, that while that might end up being a piece of the puzzle, um, almost always one of the big challenges with delivering a useful experience through these kind of things is how you meld together all kinds of different data sets, often in real time with you know, a lot of processing horsepower uh, in the background to make it all happen to actually get to a worthwhile outcome. Yeah, I think that's an important point they there aren't really well there are, there are some emerging open standards but i think there are limitations at the moment in terms of getting things communicating properly um and, and you know let, let's take for example a hypothetical smart garment let's call it a, a running vest that um uh, that measures your your sweat uh, and perhaps also uh, your heart rate and and uh, and maybe you know motion so that it tells you how hard you're working, you know, how much sodium you've depleted in your run, um, and, and you know, possibly also does something with with your body temperature so that it makes the, the vest warmer or cooler, uh, and a number of things of this kind. But it's well, going well, perhaps to hypothetical, no more. I, I know that Polar, uh, the company which does things like heart rate monitors, this was one of the things they were talking about at CES: is uh, a shirt which has got perhaps not all of those, but certainly some of those sensors embedded in, which is your kind of archetypical workout shirt, but with, with all sorts of different sensors bundled into it. Okay, well, so that that's 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 precisely the sort of the sort of thing that. That, that Polar and, and, and indeed others are, are, are working on. Now, that's also going to produce some data, which um, for for keen runners is just, you know, it's gold dust. I mean, I, I don't know about, about you, Marek, but um, I, I have been keeping a diary of all my runs for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. Um, and, and I look over the data and how far and how fast I've gone and, and all sorts of other things of that kind. Uh, and I know that now with, with things like Strava, uh, and, and RunKeeper, you know, two two running uh, apps um, for for monitoring performance and, and training. Um, uh, 
So that, that's people. pretty interesting. I mean, that's, that's quite dedicated. You know, while I've done that probably over about that period of time, I wouldn't say that I've sort of applied any any rigor to it. For me, those data probably exist in a whole bunch of different silos from like an app that I was using maybe on a Symbian smartphone 10 years ago to probably some stuff that's in, you know, my Android device today. But it's sort of all over the place. And I, I've, I guess, just accepted that as I've moved from device to device that maybe those data aren't going to come with me. Well, so that's, that's and, and that's that's, I guess, heading towards the point that I'm trying to make because... I have kept and continue to keep a, a pen and paper diary, um, but I input the same data um, into different apps uh, and have done over time. So I also use the, the Run Britain Rankings uh, web app um, as well as uh, using Strava. And, and um, those, you know, I, I don't know whether I'll continue to use those apps, but I know that pen and paper will be around for, for plenty more time. And, if, you know, uh, either of those things change. I'm sure there will be some way of writing manually, and and so so this really does bring me to the to, to the point, which is that if I buy my shirt from my my running vest, my clever running vest from from one manufacturer, I'm then to an extent locked into buying more kits from the same manufacturer because the ability of that data to be ported over to to something else is is not immediate and easy and yes yes there are standards yes there are ways of doing this but in each case there is a certain amount of development that needs to be done um, either by one uh, either by the receiver uh, and or the producer of the data so whether it's it's an app or or, or the vest itself the, the manufacturer of the vest so, so some sort of collaboration needs to be done there um, even if it's a you know using an API um, yeah, I mean, and at the moment, it feels like a lot of that is correlating around the two major smart plat- smartphone platforms, iOS and, and Android, in as much as if you're doing this kind of fitness tracking through a wearable currently, it's likely to be, say, either an Apple Watch, in which case you're probably in the iOS ecosystem, or an Android Wear Watch, in which case you're probably in the Android and, and Google ecosystem. Um, but do you think that's something which might change over time, that uh, a third party might emerge there, or perhaps something you know, which is coming more from the wearable side of things might emerge as you know, uh, another platform contender there where people may start to, to centralise their data? Well, hopefully. Um, I mean, if, if, if I just briefly mention, mention Zingy and, and um, the, the, the nutrition app that, that I've been working on for the last year, we, we um, have developed an iOS application that uh, makes use of HealthKit, uh, that's Apple's uh, platform, um, to bring in data from all sorts of other devices and apps and through there to import uh, some, some key things such as activities that you might have undertaken, which we then interpret uh, in terms of you know, energy expenditure. Now, that's kind of convenient. It's kind of easy. But it's not necessarily the best way of doing things, um, and it is possible, uh, as others have, to to uh, fix up communication between between us and, and all sorts of other apps and devices. Now, is it likely that someone's going to produce a set of standards that allows to do that without having to to write a, a huge amount of extra code? I, I don't know. I mean, wh- who's who's to benefit from that? 
Apple are, are investing heavily, not just in health kit, but in things like research kit and uh, as well, and which which is you know designed to really take a, a a major stand. And I think it's a it's a serious long term investment for them. And I, I don't know whether they would necessarily want people to bypass the platforms that they're creating. Um, and and I suspect that Google doesn't either. But for both the industry and for consumers, I'm not convinced that having these two uh, monolithic, megalithic platforms is necessarily the best way of doing things. Yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be fascinating, I think, to see the impact that those kind of high-level platform decisions end up having on the way consumers feel about these kind of products maybe not in these early generations, but certainly as we get further down the line, you, know, you were alluding to there about you know, your history of, of tracking running data. And as people start to realize that uh, the product choices that they're making, um, sometimes you're know, on the spur of the moment, actually do potentially have long-term implications about how effective these kind of devices might be for their life as a whole depending on whether or not they can get access to those data and share them with a, a wider range of services. It, it actually reminded me of, of one of the other examples, which I think you put into our Basecamp discussion, which is V or, or Vi, which describes itself as the, the first true artificial intelligence personal trainer. Um, do you want to tell listeners a bit about how this one worked, if you can recall the details? Sure, absolutely. Um, and actually, I first came across this last year and thought, well, it sounds like a great idea, but I hate it because I, I don't like having headphones. But if, if essentially what we have is, is a pair of uh, Bluetooth headphones, and I'm not quite sure how to describe it. It's a sort of device that sits around the neck uh, and, and, is then, uh, and then has actually cables communicating, uh, connecting the, 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 um, to, to the headphones. Yeah, I mean, to, to my mind, it looked pretty familiar for um, Bluetooth headphones, which are designed for, for workouts. I mean, I've got a pair myself, which I don't actually wear for workouts for probably the same reasons that you do. I don't particularly enjoy having earphones in my ear while I'm working out. But that sort of, that form factor where you've got some kind of band that goes around the neck, which has the, you know, the, the smarts of the device within it, uh, and then leading up to some earphones on a wire, but the, the whole thing overall doesn't require a wired connection back to a phone. Yeah, I think that that's a pretty well-trodden path now for, for these kind of things. Yes, indeed. And and what this what this device effectively does is not only let you listen to to music, but it has a, a, a personal trainer that supposedly is paying attention to how well you are performing and just nudges you a little bit to perform better. So you know that that's 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 effectively what it's 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 geared up to do is is just to push you on a little bit more and, and get you to, to, to run faster or further. And, and, and likewise, it's, um, I think it also has now the uh, personal training capability for cyclists. Um, so it's, um, it's, it's, it's a personal trainer in your ear without needing a personal trainer. Now, I, I wonder if it's as good as, as, as a good personal trainer, but uh, who knows? It means you can take it with you every time you, you, you go out running. Another category of job potentially, which is under threat from the emerging Borg, which everyone seems worried about these days. I, I suspect that um, I don't know with the number of. I mean, it's 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 a growing industry, fitness training, and 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 the whole uh, 
gym industry has grown tremendously in the last couple of years, actually. So I think for the time being, um, the, the, the personal coach is, is, is safe. But uh, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Maybe, maybe we'll come to, to a virtual reality world where we'll believe we're training um, and that will be sufficient. I guess one of the things that really caught my attention with this example when you found it and posted it up was that you're right, that the hardware is the most noticeable thing initially. And I think they've even partnered, I forget who it was with now, but with one of the high-end audio manufacturers to co-brand the the earphones. You know, So they've obviously put a lot of work into making it look like a nice piece of hardware. Um, but if you look at the background with this and watch their video, their product demonstration, it's pretty clear that actually the hardware for them is just a means to an end. You know, what Their unique selling point um, is the fact that this particular service uh, is apparently using some kind of artificial intelligence engine in the background. And yeah, I think most people are probably aware now that the term artificial intelligence is something applied to a whole range of different techniques. We'll have to take their word that they are doing something genuinely smart there, but that in real time, it can interpret the data which are coming in from the hardware. It can look at historic data of both you and other people who are logged within their system or you know, other generic averages, and it can give you advice in real time based on some kind of smart calculations that it's doing with this artificial intelligence engine. Now, theoretically, you know, if that is their unique selling point, if that's what they feel they're really good at, the way they've designed that artificial intelligence, then they don't necessarily need to sell this particular piece of hardware to make that happen. You could imagine a situation where actually their wearable product, in inverted commas, is licensing that background engine to existing headphone manufacturers who maybe have better distribution channels or, say, a smartphone manufacturer that wants to get into this area or a sportswear company um, that, as we've seen, are very keen on the idea of getting into this space and have been buying up various different startups and you know, fitness tracking companies to give them a, a foothold here. Yes, absolutely. Now, we've spent quite a lot of time talking about sport and fitness. There are lots of other categories, lots of other industries where wearables are also playing a role. Is there a particular use that you might like to, to highlight? I, I know one of the examples that you, you mentioned on Basecamp was, was Sense, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, which again, I, th- I think it was the Sense peanut that you, you refer to. I, I don't know whether you wanted to perhaps dive into, into that a little bit. Yeah, that was uh, an interesting one. Again, actually came courtesy of this How to Spend It uh, magazine from the Financial Times, which you know is an interesting thing in itself. In as much as yeah, these are things now which are being picked up by mainstream you know fashion and lifestyle press rather than just the the tech industry. Um, but the sense peanut is um, how best to describe it like a little sort of key fob size device, yeah, very easily pocketable um, that links to one particular capability. This particular one, uh, and they have a range of these, uh, is what they call the thermo peanut. Uh, And basically it monitors temperature and you can put it in your pocket, you can put it in a location around your house, and it will provide you with temperature information, which you can then tie into some kind of platform that will then take actions off the back of that temperature information. Uh, and if you have a look at the Sense website, they have a variety of, of others, which all have different capabilities. But perhaps the standout thing about this was uh, the simplicity of it, 
uh, and also um, the low cost of it, that this was something yeah, almost in a, a standalone sense that you could buy for a very particular capability uh, and then you know almost forget about. So it's the idea potentially of these devices uh, almost as a, a sort of forgettable throwaway purchase. I, I thought this was quite clever, um, actually almost brazen, to be honest. They, they've put together in these, in these different peanuts effectively one or two sensors, be they motion sensors or, or thermometers. And um, they put them in this, in this cute little package in, a, in an array of, of different pastel colors. And they've said, look, you can use it to do something in particular. So you have your thermo peanut, uh, which, you know, you've just described. Um, and then you have, for example, your med peanut, which you can put next to, uh, you know, against your, uh, attached to your, 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 your medicine uh, box that will remember the last time it, it moved. So you know that, you know, you, talk, you took your meds four hours ago and, and it'll remind you then to, to take them again now. Or, or you know, one the, the the guard peanut was was another example, and 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 that is just a motion sensor which we've seen lots of other people do, like tile, for example. Um, and and that just sits on on a on a fob on on, on say a, a a bag or or, or whatever it happens to be, and, and allows you to to do something. And and I think this is clever. It's just you know it's 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 really simple. They're cheap sensors. It's cheap packaging, and you can use them for a whole range of different things. And, and what sits behind it is this sort of clever marketing of saying, look, this is its purpose. So it's, it's kind of flipped that on, on its head a little bit, I think, and, and gone from, you know, we've got a purpose looking for a sensor to we've got a whole bunch of sensors. What can we do with them? And, and you know, that it, it, it's clever. Yeah. And in that way, potentially is the antithesis of the current generation of smartwatch experiences where they try to do numerous things within the same package with this your choice of the package you know when you reach to pick up the particular peanut that you need at that moment um, you know that it does that capability and that capability alone and is defined by it yeah and, and I'm, I'm sort of slightly intrigued by their sleep peanut um, I'm, I'm quite intrigued by, by sleep at the moment I know lots of people are doing things with it I suspect some of it is scientifically reliable and, and some of it is uh, you know, as 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 is often the case with tech, really speculative, um, and and the the sleep peanut figures out when you are in light sleep, I guess based on movement, and then it lets your alarm go off. You know, after you've slept a certain number of hours, so it's it's quite clever in that sort of sense. But I, I wonder, you know, how good that is. But it's it's you know it it fits within this whole category of of uh, sleep related devices and and applications. Um, and you know potentially is 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 a good thing, but I think it would be even better if something like that were able to communicate with, for example, um, some of the sleep apps that are out there, like Paziz or Sleepio. Yeah, which I would imagine is is not far off. That you know a lot of these companies must be looking at those integrations. But again, with those caveats that you mentioned earlier about which particular platforms that they tie into and and how uh, you make that architectural. Yeah, glue together in an open way. Um, but it, it does sort of bring us back to something we alluded to earlier, which is that when we're talking about these kind of experiences and therefore trying to get to a place where we can start to define some of the principles which might guide the way we design for them, um, yeah, do we need to try and actually uh, draw a circle around what we consider to be a wearable, if that's the definition that we're going to stick with. And something like this, I think, um, this particular example with the, the peanuts, 
throws up some interesting questions there. I mean, it's not a massive leap of imagination, and I think these do already exist in, in lab form, to imagine something like the thermopenas um, being used, say, to sense internal temperatures and being swallowed in capsule form, for instance. Now, at that point, are we talking about wearables? Are we talking about ingestibles? Um, you know, is this part of, of the same thing? Can there be a set of design principles which can be applied to those kind of you know, different scenarios in a generic way that remains valid? Um, or are we trying to, to include too much within this and coming back to this idea that actually wearable is a, a bit of a misnomer? Because in its current form, for instance, the, the peanuts are probably more akin to the way you might think about, say, um, uh, a key fob. Um, rather than thinking about something that you strap to your wrist uh, on a, a day-to-day basis. Well, Matt, I, I, I am not satisfied with the term wearable, uh, and I'm not satisfied with with things like ingestibles and 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 various other different ways of of putting things next to or inside your body um, that have some sort of technology. Uh, I think calling calling things wearable is is not a particularly useful term. I mean, I, I agree with you, um, and you know, I think in in some ways it's kind of it's lazy to try and do this, um, you know, to try and group everything together like that. But I'm curious as to to why. I mean, why is it an insufficient term in, in your mind? Well, I, 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 I mean, the first thing is that we, we've talked again quite a bit about sensors, and and you know, this is really where it came from initially. Wearables were were all about sensors, and you, and we had bracelets, and we had rings, and there were lots of uh, lots of rings that that came onto the market at one point, and and I've recently read about a wedding ring that allows you to to make payments. Um, so who said marriage isn't a transaction? But <laughs> um, but but we 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 need to get beyond that and and start thinking about other things. And there are a number of different sectors, industries that uh, have things. Let's call them things, products, whatever that you somehow wear and there are some really clever things going on for example in clothing i listened well i watched today a, a video from innovate uk talking about um some work being done by a phd student at queen mary's university london um who was working on the uh, the the, uh, uh, the way particular fabrics deal uh, sort of reflect light and, and the, the possibility that maybe in 30 years' time you, you actually really could have an invisibility cloak. Um, so that's that's sort of quite interesting, looking into the future. Um, and there are other sorts of um, uh, garments that respond to your environment or or, um, or, 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 or are able to, to, for example, self-clean. So there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on there. And, and what was quite interesting is... Uh, some of the things that are going on at London College of Fashion, where they've brought together experts in different fields. Uh, and that's always good news, because, I mean, we know that if we really want to get somewhere with this stuff, we need experts from lots of different fields. Um, and they bring them together, whether they're uh, digital electronics, uh, fabrics specialists, um, and and um, really starting to work on the sorts of clothing that we could put together in the future that potentially mean we don't need to put a radiator up your jumper. You can actually, you know, generate heat because of the the friction in the fabric, for example, or or something else of that kind, or something that just traps air a lot better. So you, so you stay warmer with a thin uh, thin membrane rather than needing to wear a heavy coat. So you know, it'd be interesting to see where this all goes. 
And, and here we, we've, we've stopped talking about sensors and we've stopped talking about bracelets and activity trackers and data. We're, we're just talking about, you know, how can we make better garments? Well, indeed. And, you know, that I think is, is a different way of, of looking at this altogether in the sense of, is this going to be as much about technologies which in the background enable us to make things which are already quite familiar form factors or quite familiar materials just in in smarter ways um, and there have been you know, a few different examples that we've had in from various people which have sort of got us thinking about that and with all of these you know, that that video that Alex mentioned of Innovate UK and all of the different examples that we've cited we will put links to all of them in the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com so that you can go and find easy ways to jump off and explore them all for yourself but you know, going back to this idea of how we relate this to moving forward with experience design in this area, I can't get away from, from this notion that as much as we look at this from the perspective of, say, different existing industries or different existing technology categories, the only way we're really going to make meaningful sense of this is to try and get down to some of the underlying motivations that might drive users to want something of this nature or be able to do more with something of this nature than they're able to do with existing products and services. And that, you know, that feels like the most productive area where we can try and, you know, move something forward on this. And uh, at the moment, you know, some, you know, some of the products that are out there are touching on them, but it feels like there's a whole lot of levels which uh, companies are missing in terms of understanding what the real deep user motivation is um, to want to do something with, say, one of these, you know, early fitness trackers or smartwatches or, or whatever it is. Yeah, they intersect with a few of the user motivations, but they're probably not taking off in the mass market because they're not really fully understanding that the deep drivers that are there. The question is, how deep do we go with those things? I mean, you could look at something like, you know, the reason why people buy a Fitbit and say, well, it's because they want to track their activities. But actually, yeah, there's probably a considerable number of people out there who have not yet bought one of these because they're at a more fundamental level of just, I want to remain healthy and have not yet got into this kind of specifics, which would allow them to be susceptible to say Fitbit's marketing around, you know, we can be your best uh, activity tracker. And you could extend that, I think, to a whole range of different areas around, you know, like jewelry, for instance. We looked at one example, um, which was a collaboration of uh, a company that's been involved with MEX in the past, Top, uh, the Swedish design agency, where they'd worked with the Pins Collective and a hardware uh, agency called People People to come up with this uh, digital pin badge that you could wear, which is very much about the idea of style and, and adornment, um, where you might say this is about people who want a stylish piece of jewellery with uh, some kind of you know futuristic technology angle to it. But actually, it might be something a lot more fundamental, like I just want to be noticed. So you know, when you think about these things, and when you think about where the opportunities might emerge, you know, are, are there particular behaviors and motivations at that, that deep level that you think we need to be focusing in on to really understand the design techniques that, that might be most applicable? There's just one thing there that you mentioned, this idea that things haven't reached mass market yet. I, I wonder whether these things are going to reach mass market do, do they need to be mass markets? Do we, does, does everyone need to have a fitness tracker? Or, you know, is, is, is everyone interested in those things in the same way that 
that your 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 mobile device, your phone in your pocket is pretty much ubiquitous. Um, and, and I think the answer to that is, is probably no. And, and I don't think we will ever see sales of smartwatches at the same level as as a phone because it simply doesn't do the same thing. Um, and as, as you said earlier, you can't really have the same level of input and input control from a device that is the size of, well, maybe your thumb or a little bit bigger. Um, so that that is it's it's very limiting um, as a form factor, and 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 for some people, as you said, you know, some people are simply not interested in fitness. Some people are more interested in in sports performance than than what is uh, provided for by the likes of Fitbit. Um, and then there are those who 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 are keen on sport but simply can't afford a device of that kind. Uh, although I believe there are now some some other manufacturers like uh, Xiaomi who are producing much cheaper devices of, of of this kind, but whether or not they're reliable, I have no idea. Well, that point about the uh, the form factors is kind of an, an interesting one because you know there is an argument, of course, with all of this that actually these things will be superfluous as wearables. You know, if if we stick with with that term, however um, unfortunate it may be, in as much as smartphones, which are ubiquitous for yeah many parts of the world are getting a lot of these sensors which allow you to do uh, many of the things which are promised by the current generation of wearables to almost as good a level and may well improve the quality of those sensors sufficiently that it's good enough for to capture most people who are interested say in being able to have uh, the fitness tracking but also you know some of the other sensors coming in around things like tracking atmospheric pressure and temperature that you might be able to get to a point of good enough with the existing package of your smartphone so again you come back to that question of what could possibly motivate someone to want this to be anything other than in the form factor of the products which they already have in their lives, i.e. something like a, a smartphone. And there I think we start to get into some more of those questions about user behaviours and making these suited to the needs of each individual. And to go back to, to your point about, well, you know, not everyone um, is ever going to want to, say, track their their fitness. I think it's it's much broader than that. So maybe we could say, for instance, that almost everyone will have some kind of additional sensor beyond the primary smartphone or whatever mobile device that they carry with them but for you know, a whole range of different people that will that particular sensor will have a different purpose you know this is probably not going to fundamentally change the number of people in the world who are interested in tracking their fitness um, but it may open up a whole range of other possibilities about people who for instance want to have life logging cameras uh, or want to have some kind of um, you know changeable uh, piece of jewelry which you know morphs depending on the environmental conditions around them so there'll be a different type uh, for all kinds of different categories of people. Yes, I mean m- maybe we we we've managed to live pretty well up till now without needing a whole bunch of biosensors. So you know, is is it really necessary to have for everyone to have some 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 biosensing technology? I I, I wonder. But um, we we do live with biosensors. I mean, they're it's you know it's our body, it's our fingertips, mm. it, it's our eyes, it's our ears. Um, so potentially when you offer people the ability to augment and enhance those 
so long as you're able to cross that line where it feels like um, what you're getting in return outweighs the uh, negatives that come with it, which at the moment might be anything from cost to the inconvenience and discomfort of, of wearing them. Once you can change that equation sufficiently in favour of the augmentation you're able to give people, maybe that's the tipping point we need to, to get to. And at the moment, in most categories, I'd say that feels quite far distant. But I'm not sure that the fundamental motivation doesn't exist. It's just that currently, yeah, our body meets most of those needs for us. Well, I think that's right. And, and you know, what is the augmentation that's possible? And at the moment, that augmentation tends to be creating data and analysing that data. So, you know, I'm perfectly capable of, of sitting here watching the rain come down and, and, and hearing the drops on the window panes. Now, if I had a, a particular sensor that was listening to what I'm listening to, it could then log that and then produce a, a, a uh, map over time of where I've been and, and what the rain conditions have been. You know, that's, that's, that might be interesting and useful to some people. I mean, it's obviously uh, just a spurious example, but it, it really depends on the individual's appetite for that additional data and analysis. I mean, we have so much data and, and, and you know, what do we, what do, how much do we need? And, and, and there are plenty of people who are less inclined to, to have uh, their lives filled with additional data. So, so the question is, what is that motivation? What is it that, that you get from having uh, additional sensors and communication abilities for, for transmitting data and analyzing it? So I, I currently am at a bit of a loss as to what that that all-encompassing mass market thing is going to be. I mean, I suppose, you know, one of the, the great unifiers wherever you are in the world and you know, among all people is the sense of fun and playfulness. And that's something which, you know, we haven't really talked about much so far in, in this episode of the podcast, not least because most of the stuff out there on the market I don't think really has that that kind of sense of fun to it. But, you know, there are a few things which are, are starting to emerge there which might fall into that category and perhaps give a sense of, of where the mass market motivation might be. And, yeah, it's that idea of moving beyond these experiences being about basically some form of, of tracking and data gathering and analysis, as you rightly say, into something which is just playful for the sake of being playful in the same way that you might choose to buy a garment in a particular color just because it makes you smile rather than the fact that it has some kind of you know, utilitarian purpose like camouflage or, or whatever it is. And we had some uh, examples coming from, from the Mex community. Uh, Alexa Schoen, who um, some of you may remember from the Mex 16 conference in London in October, where she spoke about the work that she's been doing around uh, copywriting and it, its link with uh, the experience design process. Um, she sent us in some examples, uh, one of which was uh, Electro Couture. Um, now, this is a, an agency which works on these enabling technologies and providing services around um, smart fabrics and wearables and all kinds of different interesting things. And they've got a project in their portfolio called um, the Berlin Graffiti Project. And there, what they did was find a, a new way of weaving patterns into uh, a garment made of, of merino wool 
um, but also embedded it with some uh, lights uh, and an audio sensor, which would pick up the the rhythm, if you like, of life and, and the environment around you, and then would make the lights within the garment pulsate uh, in response to that environment. Now, this is something which clearly is not being done for any you know, particular um, commercial or, you know, like structured purpose. It's just being done because it's fun. It's about fashion and, and adornment. Um, and maybe that gives us a sense of, of where that the mass market will end up um, with these kind of uh, explorations. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, I wonder about all, all these devices that are rings and bracelets and necklaces that have lost their decorative elements and have become just you know another electronic device um so uh, i think you're right coming back to dare i say frivolous purposes like fun like adornment are not necessarily a bad thing and maybe maybe um the use of technology to 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 produce uh, new forms of of these uh, elements is 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 where at least part of the industry needs to go. We get back to something that you alluded to earlier, which is that some of these capabilities, some of these approaches, are things which don't necessarily come naturally to companies which have been structured to research interesting new technologies and make as much money as possible by getting them as widespread as possible in a whole range of, of different form factors, which you know, basically is the history of the smartphone industry in a nutshell, if you want to be mercenary about the whole thing. I think some of these motivations are going to require the collaboration with, or perhaps um, the lead from uh, companies and individuals who have a very different view of the world and who can open up the, uh, the the eyes of some of these technology companies to the possibilities around fashion and pleasure and these kind of you know frivolous um, applications which actually really capture people's imaginations and give them a reason to to love these uh, products and yeah that suggests that actually we're going to be looking at a rather different approach around say the way user research is done in this area uh, around the way um, some of the design teams are structured to collaborate with for instance uh, groups of, of people artisans that maybe would not be used to working with technology companies or agencies that specialize in the design of technology projects and yeah, that's going to require a bit of a rethink, I think, about in, in how uh, the, these companies take these kind of things on. Well, I wonder whether we shouldn't be looking to, to James Bond for, uh, for inspiration. I mean, after all, all of his devices, his, his, his uh, clever watches and pens and so forth, they are uh, still adornments, you know, he, you know his... his uh, his exploding phone or his exploding pen rather and, and, and those sorts of things and, and pens with darts and, and, and umbrellas with, with darts and, and watches with cheese wire and all the rest of it. These are, f they have their, their intended purpose of, uh, or at least their intended ostensible purpose of being a writing implement or, or, or a timepiece. They are beautifully designed as as you'd expect from the, the, the companies that these are drawn from. And, and then there's that other bit of technology that sits underneath that is a little bit clever. And while I'm not suggesting we'll go out and buy devices for killing spies, 
it might be that a device needs to think about things at uh, those three levels. What is its ostensible purpose? What is its design attribute? And, and what is, thirdly, that additional bit of technology that gives it something extra? Well, indeed. I mean, you know, quite apart from being slightly concerned by your your, your bloodthirsty idea of wanting to, to kill and maim with uh, all of these different products. Um, I think there's there's a, a key thing there about this idea of of stealth and personalization. Um, yeah, those are things which actually do have the potential to, to capture people's imaginations. Yeah, it makes me think a little bit about um, yeah some of the things around, for instance, tailoring, where yeah there's this notion of having you know some kind of fun fabric sewn into, for instance, the inside pockets of a suit jacket, which. Yeah, given the way um, a lot of uh, the kind of stereotypes are around suits, there's this expectation that the exterior of the suit will be this, you know, serious business color of gray or, or blue. And one of the ways that people stealthily have a bit of self-expression with that is by doing something like using one of those uh, frivolous fabrics in the interior. Now, what's the, how might that kind of thing be carried over to some of these, um, tech products which are going to fall into this area and respond to that motivation that even when we you know, want to appear or have a central purpose uh, which is say you know, very business-like or functional there's always that scope for wanting that little bit of personalization even if it's stealthily hidden away because we ourselves know it's there and it's something which represents us as individuals or you know, allows us to just express a, a little bit of personality. Yeah, and I think that was one of the interesting things about um, the the pins example that you mentioned earlier is is that ability to personalise. You know, clearly that's a it's a the the, the pins uh, is 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 obviously pretty frivolous and and fun just for the sake of it. it that's obviously not going to be mass market as 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 a device in itself either. But it has the potential to to grab lots of people's imagination, and and not just the the end consumer's imagination, but hopefully the imagination of designers and developers who might come out come up with uh, other forms of wearable device that don't fit into the you know the three rings of or rather three sort of O-shaped devices of, of ring, bracelet and, and necklace and, and you know yeah and, and really you know come into other other areas and here we may also be talking about uh, other sorts of wearables like um, uh, glasses for example or or hats or, or, or shoes or whatever else you know just things that are uh, personalized and clever using technology whether digital or, or otherwise so here's a, a question for you because al- almost all of these examples that we've talked about so far um, are all derived from familiar form factors of some kind yeah you mentioned there about the rings and the bracelets even something like this pin badge you know while it's an interesting new variation on it yeah it's it's very clearly marketed as a digital pin i.e something that we're already familiar with do you think then that there's a greater potential here to open up new categories which don't correlate directly back to an existing form factor um, and that actually some really off-the-wall experimentation is what's needed here to come up with something entirely novel? That's a very interesting question and I suspect that given that we're talking about wearables and that we've been wearing stuff for 
however many thousands of years? I suspect the answer is the form factors that we embed or somehow use new technologies. I, I suspect we're not going to come up with anything new. I mean, everything's going to be some sort of a derivative of clothing or uh, or, 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 or jewelry that has that has come before, or, or, or some other accessory. I, 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 I actually I struggle to think of any new form that is wearable that has come about, whether it's digital or otherwise. I, I suppose potentially there's an evolutionary timeline there, where, yeah, as you say, most of these things are probably going to have a heritage in something that is already familiar to us, because you know we. As humans, you know that that's the way we go about creating things. Is that we use a lot of existing reference points to do it. But perhaps, as time unfolds, they will become less recognisable, and you get to that point where actually, if you were to look at one of those things objectively, you may find it very difficult to relate it back to that existing form factor unless you knew the history of of how it had developed. It then becomes a distinct form factor in of itself. In the same way that if you look at something like um, smartphones, for instance, yeah, there was a point in time, probably ten years ago or so, where they were very clearly derived from desk telephones, the fixed line telephones that we were used to. But now we've got further and further from that, and we may well reach a point in the future where actually, you, if you were to look at one of those individually, you might not be able to see the link unless you knew the history. Yes, indeed, um, and and perhaps then there are, there are two things that we could look at. I mean, you mentioned ingestibles. I think another area is, is implantables. So the idea that something is 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 uh, put under the skin, but also this notion of uh, the digital skin, um, which, in a sense, would be. I mean, if you if you, if you look at the number of uh, clothings clothing types that are that are uh, very close to the skin anyway, you might you might come to a point where you have a digital skin that that. That may look like it has a different form to to what it actually has. That's that's you know part of what's being worked on at the moment, um, and and may come to fruition in, in the next I don't know ten or twenty years or something like that. So 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 that I think is a possibility. And and once you are talking about a digital skin, the the possibilities of what can be done with it are pretty much um, limitless. I think there, there's any range of different sensors and 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 um, uh, communications uh, technologies that can be embedded in that, and, and presumably also ways of of generating uh, power that don't require other forms of uh, any, any any form of uh, plugging into to charge, for example. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that um, we were looking at in the run up to this was some of the things that are happening around um, these uh, energy harvesting techniques, where essentially the movement of the fabric itself, be that some kind of digital skin or the clothing, the fabric used to, to make clothing, um, is actually capable of generating small amounts of energy through this piezoelectric uh, nanofibers, uh, which can then be used to power you know, the various different sensors or displays, for instance, that are used as part of that overall experience. So yeah, looking further into the future, there are all kinds of interesting things coming down the line. I guess it does still, though, come back to that question of, well, what would motivate people to do something that extreme um, as wearing an artificial skin or having something which breaks the skin barrier? And this is something that we see 
time and again in all of these areas and how they relate to digital experience design is that the closer you get to people's skin and then you come up against that, you know, very distinct, you know, very real barrier of now we need to do something which breaks your skin or integrates directly with your body, be that, you know, some of the things that are happening around, for instance, you know, direct brain interfaces where you can now control different digital devices directly with your brain if you're willing to have the implant there has to be an incredibly strong and specific motivation for people to go through that big psychological leap of, I am in some way going to integrate digital directly into my body. You know, that is a, a conceptual leap too far, I think, for a lot of people at the moment. And, you know, there's uh, a sort of exp uh, an incremental increase in that um, as you get closer to the skin barrier. And then suddenly that big hard stop limit for a lot of people, which they are currently at least just not willing to cross. I think that's 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 true. And, and who knows, maybe we won't cross it. Or, although the idea of having the implanted chip in the back of the head is 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 one that uh, certain people in in the tech world think is is uh, utopia but in in terms of digital skin and applications there um, there was one thing i was looking at last year which was how you managed to detect uh, and this is in a healthcare setting um, after surgery how do you detect whether or not an incision has has begun to to heal properly and uh, avoid infections that occur and and it is possible using various various means to actually detect that and and you could have a wearable that that deals with that some sort of bandage that is clever now one of the biggest problems with that is that you would need some form of battery technology at the moment to power it um, and not least to to power not not so much the sensing but the communicating of the data that the sensor is producing with a device that can then warn you or, or uh, potentially uh, power the, 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 the changing nature of that uh, skin that sits on, on, that, on that bandage, for example. Now, if we're looking at these, these, uh, these fibers that can generate energy through movement, then we have a solution there for something that's very practical and would save healthcare uh, services quite a lot of money and patients uh, quite a lot of uh, discomfort and potentially uh, serious complications. So, you know, that, that, that is an application where uh, these new technologies are uh, in, in some way wearable um, and, and have a crossover from everyday use to, to quite specialist use. Well, and, you know, it, it gives hope for the future, I think, that if you can find something like that, which responds to that that very practical and very strong motivation that there might be, as you say, around some particular medical application, um, that there are going to be ways that we can solve those things and create experiences which do deliver you know, a really meaningful benefit into users' lives um, that hopefully will enable us to, to get through this um, perhaps somewhat disappointing period we've had of products that you know just feel like they're they're searching for um, to answer questions that aren't necessarily really there. One of the things which has struck me about bringing together this episode is that yeah we we could you know, sit here and talk about all kinds of different examples for the the rest of the day. There's there's no shortage of interesting things out yeah. there either on the horizon or currently you know on the market or going through the kickstarter process there's a lot of interesting things happen i've 
got a feeling we've probably not heard the last of this subject on the MEX podcast. In bringing together some of these references, we've been in touch with various different people who have all expressed an interest in coming on and talking about work they're doing in this area. So hopefully we'll have more to come in the future so subscribers can look forward to uh, to hearing a little bit more about that. But you know, to try and bring th- this particular episode to some sort of a close, I wonder what a yeah, what, what are the things that we can take away from this that might inform how you'd go about starting to design something new in this area or improve an existing product? And, you know, if maybe you have a, a think about that, Alex. I'll go first to so as not to put you on the, the spot. But, you know, <laughs> something which has struck me as, as we've been talking through all of this is the sense that, you know, more than any other area that I've looked at around experience design. The breadth of this is just stunning. And you know, I'm looking down through some of the examples that we've brought together on here, and it goes into areas which you know, I'll freely admit I have no knowledge of. And you know, it, it makes me think about, well, if I was going to be designing something in this area, one of the things that would be so important to getting that process off on the right foot would be to be able to come into it with an open mind to really work on the process of how you collaborate with entirely new stakeholders and artisans and craftspeople who might have specific bits of expertise which could be relevant to it and to be able to learn from them quickly and work with uh, and establish working vocabularies in areas that maybe uh, are entirely unfamiliar to you you know that as a core skill you know if you're going to make some kind of contribution to this area and bring with you the things that you know about technology and experience design the area of digital would seem to be you know, an area that, that really needs um, focus and improvement Um, and that's I guess as much a thing about process as it is about particular technologies uh, or about learning about particular products it's about improving who you are as a practitioner as as an individual practitioner uh, as much as it is about gaining bits of specific knowledge relating to um, you know to the latest tech yeah I, I, I absolutely agree with that and and I think that my thoughts tally quite closely with that. I, I think that we need to perhaps come away a little bit from the obsession with sensors and data. I think that the term wearable is limiting. And if we were to, 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 to throw it away, really, as, as it's, it's just a tag, it's just a description, just means wearable thing. Uh, if, if we were to just throw that away, we suddenly realize that we have a vast number of industries and needs that can uh, be be satisfied through things devices that are wearable that are close to or 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 inside the skin but also that um that the things that we currently have that are wearable that are close to or or inside the skin that are for example just a, a a sweater or a pair of shoes um, that there are technologies that can be brought to play to to improve them that aren't necessarily to do with 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 sensors and um, you know bringing as you say together experts from quite a broad number of fields whether they are material scientists um, who often don't don't get involved in these sorts of areas or or, or digital specialists and user experience specialists and, and and many others I think that that is that is the opportunity 
we probably need to, to, to say it again, break up this idea of wearables and think of it not as one category, but just uh, uh, an adjective that can be applied in a whole number of different industries and categories where you're not going to get necessarily a, a specialist because wearable is so, so broad. I mean, you know, from, from tiaras to shoelaces, it's, it's, it's vast. Absolutely. Literally head to toe. Exactly. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, I think as a, a sort of closing challenge to our, our listeners, um, maybe there's something that one could try you know, next time if you're working in an agency or an in-house team on projects which relate to this area. Perhaps yeah, an approach to try here is to have the courage to remove some of the anchor points which we've become so used to. Uh, and I'd cite one in particular here, which is the sense that there's always going to be a smartphone involved in that digital experience in some way. Now, it may very well be, certainly for the next few generations um, and you know, potentially into the future forever, there's some element of a, a, another smart digital companion device which forms part of these products and services. But it could be an interesting exercise for the imagination to limit yourself and say, well, what if we looked at this, in inverted commas, wearable, and thought about how we could make an interesting experience here without having some kind of smartphone companion element to it? How would that change the way we went about designing this? What kind of new partners might we need to collaborate with to do that? What sort of new materials might we need to investigate and see whether it ends up coming up with some sort of solution which is actually closer to users' motivations than something which is just hung around the current sort of mode of doing things, which is to say, well, you know, we can link that up with a smartphone companion app and that will solve all of our problems around it. Um, so that might be an interesting exercise for people to go through. Or if indeed there are listeners out there who have gone through something like that already, we would love to to hear about it. Uh, and you can get in touch with us on Twitter at Mexfeed uh, or drop us an email, designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. So Alex, I'm conscious we've um, you know been going for some time roundabout with this subject. Are there any particular closing thoughts you wanted to add? I, I have just one thing to add, Marek, and, and that is that um, we should perhaps uh, ignore Beyonce's words on this one. Um, if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. It's not necessarily the best advice when it comes to wearables. Well, that is a sad note to end the podcast on, that Beyonce is not the source of all wisdom, but I, I'm sure our listeners will be able to live with it. That's it for this edition of Mech's Design Talk. Head to mobileuserexperience.com for some obsessively detailed show notes linking to all of the examples that we mentioned. Send us feedback at mechsfeed on Twitter or email designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. And last but not least, don't forget to share, link and rate the show to help other listeners discover it for themselves. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.